Previously on Flying the Line. In the wake of the National Airlines strike, management resorts to dirty tricks to topple labor. And one pro-ALPA captain, Ed McDonald, is removed from flying as two other pilots sabotage his airmanship. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 14, The Ordeal of E.P. McDonald, Part Two. McDonald admitted that he had trouble with the ILS that night, but every veteran of the 1948 strike seemed to have trouble with the ILS approaches particularly during check rides. They just couldn't keep the needles crossed and centered. Neither could the check pilots. Most of the National Airlines strikers believed the extreme sensitivity of the ILS needles was no accident, as it was later discovered that somebody had tampered with the wiring on the instruments. It became so super sensitive that pilots were either right on the published flight path or way off. After that was straightened out, pilots then found that somebody was tampering with the sensitivity screw on the instruments just before check rides. Union leadership demanded the tampering stop, which did for a time. Since nobody in management knew how to tinker with the instruments, they had to use a technician. Whoever had actually done it was afraid they'd get caught after the pilots figured out the deception but also knew nobody in management would ever own up to putting the technician up to it as it involved safety violations of the worst sort. Describing the approach and landing that led to his dismissal, McDonald stated that he was trying to concentrate on instruments, and one of the other pilots in the cockpit would distract him by pointing out some far-off airplane. By the time his attention returned to the instruments, the situation was hopeless. He made two approaches, broke out wide of the runway on the second approach, but still managed to land. A flight attendant testified that McDonald landed two-thirds of the way down the runway. From Ed McDonald's viewpoint, the whole thing was avoidable. The afternoon before the flight, he asked Diamond to replace Hettenbaugh as his co-pilot. When Diamond refused, he went to other company executives, but all of them refused too. The documented fact that McDonald had asked for a replacement co-pilot weighed heavily with the neutral referee, Saul Wallen, when he began digging into the details of what actually happened that night. Hettenbaugh and McDonald had gotten into a fistfight in the cockpit a day or so before the incident flight. So the morning of, McDonald went right into Diamond's office and told him about it and said he didn't want to fly with the guy anymore and quipped that if McDonald couldn't handle the job, he could quit. On the night of the flight, McDonald arrived at the airport, and Diamond came walking in, went over to Hettenbaugh, and started being very chummy. Suspecting problems, McDonald was tempted to contact union leadership to warn them of the possible problem, but for some unknown reason, he never did. In an extensive brief answering the six charges against McDonald, 
Alpa argued that he had done nothing critically wrong during the approach and landing. Furthermore, managing to get the aircraft safely on the ground at all was in the best tradition of airline flying because he was coping with an emergency tantamount to mutiny in the cockpit. In short, Captain McDonald was not given the cooperation from other crew members, which a pilot is entitled to receive, the Alpa brief stated. One of the six charges against McDonald was that he had caused the flight to be placed in an extremely hazardous proximity to surrounding obstructions during the missed approach procedure, thereby endangering the lives of all aboard. The company cited the nearness of the Calco stack, which was two to three miles away from his flight path, McDonald judged. Another charge, leveled by Diamond, was that McDonald had allowed the course deviation indicator to deflect full scale, and that his decision to land after breaking out of the overcast 75 to 100 feet to the left of the runway could have resulted in a fatal accident. Fortunately for McDonald, not a single passenger on board Flight 406 complained about the rough, long landing Hettenbaugh and Diamond allegedly had observed. Also, Flight engineer Jesse Mays contradicted both of Diamond's assertions in sworn testimony. The arbitrator's conclusions relied heavily on Mays' testimony, who must have been a courageous individual, since, as a flight engineer, he did not enjoy the labor protections McDonald did. Mays even testified that the glide path indicator was not high to the extent of a full deflection, as Diamond had asserted, but to the extent of crossing about at the second dot below the bullseye. If the sharp corrections attributed to McDonald and Diamond had been made, it is hardly likely that the motion of the ship would not have been apparent to Mays. Both Diamond and Mays's testimonies refute the charge that McDonald caused the flight to be placed in extremely hazardous proximity to surrounding obstructions. Diamond stated that the pull-up for the missed approach during the first attempted landing began at least a mile before the stack, and in that mile, the aircraft would have climbed 1,200 feet above the stack, while a 500-foot separation was reasonable. These conclusions were supported by the evidence received from ALPA, who had financed a full-flight test demonstration in a DC-6, with Mr. Wallen himself sitting in the jump seat so he could observe exactly how dangerous it was to bend the plane around to land from 75 to 100 feet left of the runway, as National Airlines claimed. The simulation of McDonald's flight took place on May 29, 1950. Wallen was blindfolded until the flight crew told him, OK, there it is. When McDonald would have broken out at an altitude of 400 feet, and the pilot easily landed the plane. The feat was repeated twice more, showing the arbitrator that a pilot could be off 10 feet and get a full-scale deflection if they were close enough. As for the company witnesses, the arbitrator all but called them liars, particularly with respect to their charge that McDonald landed 4,000 feet up a 6,600-foot runway. Wallen declared that these charges were without substance, and he criticized the flight attendant's obvious exaggeration, which had McDonald landing three-quarters of the way up the runway. Wallen summed up his findings, 
reporting that while Captain McDonald made a somewhat more ragged approach than normal, Diamond, an observer, usurped the function of the captain and issued instructions that conditions did not warrant. The conditions prior to the flight were in large measure responsible for McDonald's performance. A review of his record shows not one blemish, reprimand, warning, or caution. In his eight years with National Airlines, he had never damaged an airplane. And on the trip which terminated in his discharge, there was no damage to the aircraft, nor complaints from the passengers. The system board was convinced that the presence of Hettenbaugh and Diamond in the cockpit resulted in an atmosphere of tension that was not conducive to a perfect approach and landing. On a previous trip, Hettenbaugh had argued with McDonald during the flight and had delayed in executing his orders. The job of flying a DC-6 airplane requires the closest cooperation between crew members. McDonald talked to Diamond regarding Hettenbaugh's conduct on the December 18th flight shortly before Flight 406 departed on December 21st, but no one took the sensible precaution of separating them. To permit men overly hostile toward one another to undertake such a flight when the safety of the public is involved is a serious mistake. But that is exactly what happened. The evidence was ample that McDonald did not have the cooperation of his crewmates. All concerned admit that Hettenbaugh did not call out airspeeds during the approach and would not inform the tower of timely maneuvers without prompting from McDonald. Finally, the system board was of the opinion that Diamond's behavior in the cockpit was not helpful. A comparison of pilots' records shows that the carrier had continued to employ other pilots who had been involved in more serious mishaps. Among these was Diamond, the chief witness against McDonald. There was no background of antagonism between the crew of which he was a member to explain an approach short of the runway at Idlewild on April 30, 1949, shearing off certain runway zone lights and damaging the undercarriage. Despite this hazard to life and damage to equipment, no examination of Diamond's judgment and technique took place, and he was subsequently promoted. In McDonald's case, a much stricter standard of judgment, under circumstances of lesser hazard and damage, seemed to have been applied. Fair treatment to pilots seems to require a uniform approach to such cases. It was the board's conclusion that the weight of the evidence did not demonstrate that Captain McDonald's discharge was for just cause. The arbitrator's opinion is perhaps the most devastating indictment of management's cruel injustice towards one of its pilots that exists anywhere in the annals of commercial aviation. Wallen ordered McDonald reinstated with full back pay his personal record clear of all references to his dismissal, and a return to active flying after checkout by an unbiased check pilot. Where would E.P. McDonald have been without ALPA? Would his fellow national pilots have bridled at the obvious injustice done to him and gone out on strike once more, as they did in the case of Matson O'Neill? Realistically, McDonald was skeptical. 
as the pilots were so beaten down by nine months and three weeks of walking the picket lines, and then the fiasco of that doctor saying some of them had heart attacks. McDonald wholly credited Alpa with the win for labor. Afterward, Hettenbaugh only lasted a few months before drifting away into obscurity. Like the great majority of the scabs, Diamond, who had been a non-pilot executive before the strike, never flew the line again after Alpa's loyalist returned to work. When Charles Ruby became National's chief pilot in 1954, it was under the condition that he would never be expected to take orders from Diamond, a term Baker agreed to. Maybe Ed McDonald got the last laugh after all? Next time on Flying the Line, a storied leader leaves the Union as the world of professional aviation expands into a new age. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 14 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.